Hello, everybody, and welcome yet to another episode of the Nailed It Ortho podcast. My name is Dr. Cole. Myself and Dr. Fitz started this podcast to go over high-yield orthopedic surgery topics, and we are continuing on with yet another one. Today, we have a really good episode in store for you today. We're going to talk some about distal humerus fractures. Now, if this is your first time listening to this podcast, welcome to the podcast. If you're a returning listener, welcome back. Um, those of you, just so you all know, we have been making YouTube videos that goes along with these audios. So in this one, we um, we talk about distal humerus fractures. We talk about anatomy. We talk about different approaches. We talk about paris tricipital approach, osteotomies, what it is, when to do one. And we go over the fixation types. And at the end, Dr. Grandizio was kind enough to have some cases that we could go over. So if you would like to see uh, some of the cases that we are talking about, I still included it at the end of this podcast for those of you that are listening. But if you would actually like to see the x-rays and the fractures that we are talking about, go and follow us on YouTube at Nailed It Ortho. And we also have ortho clips. So I'll put both of those links in the description to this podcast. But a little bit more about Dr. Grandizio. Again, he did an excellent job in breaking this down. Uh, but he did medical school at Philadelphia College of Osteopathic Medicine. He did his residency at Geinsinger Medical Center. And he did a fellowship at the Cleveland Clinic in hand and upper extremity surgery. So, I mean, he did, a, again, a really good job um, breaking down distal humerus fractures. And he is also the chief of the division of the shoulder and elbow surgery for Geinsinger. So without further ado, please enjoy our episode on distal humerus fractures. You are now listening to Nailed It, the orthopedic surgery podcast featuring doctors Jay Fitz and Wendell Cole. Dr. Grandizio, welcome to the Nail the Ortho podcast. We are uh, happy to have you on. Happy to finally meet up with you and talk some um, talk some distal humor. So, uh, uh, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Uh, I really appreciate the invitation. Uh, I had a chance to go through a number of your your podcasts, and it's the uh, impressive uh, impressive amount of them, and uh, uh, very educational. So, you guys should uh, be proud of what you've been able to build. Oh, very nice. Very nice words. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, thank you for listening. Um, and we typically start out the podcast, a couple of questions, just getting to know you uh, a little bit better. So first question is kind of the day, the age old question. And we're talking somewhat briefly about this um, off air. Um, but what made you choose hand as a specialty? I know you're saying you had other thoughts when you first came into residency, but then you, you end up choosing to kind of hand and upper extremity. So what brought you towards that field? So I had, I think, the really common uh, orthopedic experience where, you know, I, I played baseball in college and was, was pretty convinced that I, I wanted to do uh, sports. And, and within my residency program, I was fortunate to have a lot of mentors in, uh, you know, in, in hand and upper extremity and really found myself kind of drawn to those cases, um, particularly elbow. And so when I was looking at opportunities for um, for fellowship, uh, it was in, uh, one of the, the ideas was, was what would be the best way uh, to be able to, to do upper extremity from shoulder to fingertips and, you know, with a focus in, in elbow. Um, and I, I ended up doing a uh, hand and upper extremity fellowship that, that sort of had an emphasis on the whole limb. So I had some shoulder and elbow uh, as, well as, uh, as well as hand and wrist. Cool. Awesome. Yeah, I know a lot of people come into uh residency with the oh yeah we're gonna do because they had some you know type of injury of sports and you know they think about sports but i'm glad you kept your uh 
your uh, options open and up choosing hand because we'll we'll talk some good uh, distal humorous uh, things today. Uh, but second question uh, I have for you is: Do you have any interests outside of the field of orthopedics or anything that you like to do? Um, so I joked for a lot of years, uh, I think with residency and fellowship that, uh, I had, I have no hobbies and I was really in need of a hobby. Uh, but I have two, uh, I have two young sons that are six and four, uh, nice. they are just old enough to, uh, start playing uh, like soccer and, uh, and T-ball. So I, my, my new hobby, my new interest is now, uh, is now coaching, nice. uh, which is, which is really exciting and, uh, and is, is a, a nice change of pace from, from work. That's pretty cool. And then the last thing I have for you is, do you have a favorite case, um, like a favorite uh, operative case that you like to do? You see it on the board, you're like, ah, I'd say it's going to be a good day. Oh, uh, that, that changes every day. I think uh, at some point yesterday, I declared that uh, arthroscopic lower trapezius tendon transfers were my favorite case. I think at one point during my <laughs> OR today, elbow capsule releases, um, distal humerus fractures are up there, but I, if I really had to, had to choose, uh, I, traumatic elbow instability, uh, is, is probably my, my favorite case, uh, unless it's, you know, a particularly bad day and then it might change. But, um, I think one of the interesting aspects of, of doing, um, elbow surgery is that there's, there's such variety uh, everything from trauma to arthroplasty, uh, you know, nerve and uh, nerve and soft tissue cases, uh, and so uh, I think it it uh, it's it's tough sometimes. I think to pick one thing, uh, but if I had to, traumatic elbow instability. Yeah, there's always a lot of a lot of cool things um, about the elbow and in different cases, especially those you know those instability cases where you fix one thing and the elbow is still unstable and then you can kind of trying to figure it out. And once you finally get it, it's a nice feeling. Um, but uh, moving forth uh, to what we'll talk about today, we're going to talk about distal humerus fractures. And let's just say just random case. We have this, you know, 45 year old guy in a high energy um, uh, motor vehicle collision. And, you know, the ED calls says that, they have, you know, this patient that has this distal humerus fracture and he's nervously attacking that. And that's all that they tell you. Um, what, I guess, well, I guess kind of back, going a little bit back forth, what are the most, when we're talking kind of just about like mechanisms of injury, what are the kind of common mechanisms of injury or, or things that you normally know with a history whenever you have a patient, either young or old, that has a distal humerus fracture? So there's a little bit of a, of a bimodal distribution. Um, we, we see a lot of high energy, uh, younger patients, either, you know, motor vehicle collisions, uh, fall from, from height, um, uh, type of, of mechanism. And then there's, uh, you know, the, the, the second peak and sort of elderly, uh, perhaps lower demand, uh, fragility fa fractures, um, you know, and, and those can, uh, you know, come with underlying medical conditions and falls, uh, gait instability, sarcopenia. Um, and so, so there's a, it's a little bit of a mix, the elderly lower demand fracture, low energy fracture, uh, and then younger, younger patients with high energy trauma, often with uh, multiple, multiple injuries. Yeah. And then say, for example, you have, uh, you, you have a resident that's, um, that's telling you they went to see the patient 
and they're telling you about this fracture um, or about this patient that has this fracture, what are some of the important things that you want, you know, want to make sure you hone in on when you're talking kind of about a, a physical exam and examining these patients? So I think the, the component, especially in the workup in the emergency department is rule out associated injuries and, in, you know, in that extremity or in the, um, you know, in the lower extremity as well. Um, compartment syndrome is not as common uh, in a distal humerus fracture as it is in some of the uh, lower extremity fractures. That's certainly always um, uh, always important to look for. Uh, I think it's important to assess the the quality of the skin and soft tissues. You know, subtle um, poke hole or grade one open fractures um, are, are important to look for on exam. Uh, and then, you know, I, I think a detailed uh, neurovascular exam uh, is important. Uh, there's certainly associated ulnar nerve injuries, uh, you know, radial nerve injuries. And, and I think those are, are important to know the status of uh, before you uh, potentially take that, that case to the operating room. And so those are the, uh, um, uh, those are, I think, the, the key points that, that I'll, I'll ask our residents to, to look at when they evaluate the patient in the emergency department. Yeah, I always think that's, that's super important, especially, you know, if you take them back to the OR and I know sometimes with a lot of these procedures, one of the first things a lot of people may do is dissect out the ulnar nerve and just so like, you know, where it is and then you can kind of go about your case. But if you don't have any like really good documentation beforehand, knowing the function and then afterwards they have, you know, some type of decreased sensation is kind of, you know, it'd be nice to know what exactly how it was before. So you can know if anything changes after the OR. So just kind of reiterating that definitely doing a good physical exam, neurovascular exam with these patients is very important and looking for any open wounds. Um, when it comes to imaging, what kind of, what images do you want um, for this patient? Do you just get elbow? Do you get humerus shoulder down the wrist or what, what is your typical protocol? So in a patient with an isolated injury and, you know, doesn't have wrist pain, uh, I, I do think it's important to, to get joint above and, and, and joint below. So images that will show the, uh, the entire humerus, uh, orthogonal radiographs of the elbow. So uh, an, an AP and, uh, you know, an AP and lateral radiograph of the elbow. I think in a lot of cases, uh, particularly in the ER, traction views can be uh, particularly helpful for um, for preoperative planning. Uh, and I, I think uh, more commonly uh, CAT scan with uh, 3D, 3D recons uh, can uh, change the management and, and help, uh, you know, better understand the, better understand the fracture. Yeah. And I, I meant to, I forgot about the traction view, but yeah. So do you typically do that when you have a, you know, like a really displaced comminuted intraarticular distal humerus fracture? And when you get the traction view, are you just trying to see how it generally aligns or just get a better view of the fracture itself? Like what is your goal with the traction view? I don't get it in every fracture. Uh, I, I do think that for, uh, Younger patients uh, with comminuted, particularly intraarticular fractures, uh, that view can be uh, helpful. And, and, and sometimes in, in, in older patients as well, particularly when you're trying to decide between uh, perhaps fixation and arthroplasty, um, you can get a lot of information from a, a, the 3D recons, but the traction views can be helpful as well. It, it's one of those things that I, I've never regretted getting one. It's an additional piece of 
um, of information, uh, but I, I don't get a traction view on, um, on, on all cases, particularly for extra articular fractures. Yeah. And, and so I assume for this, the CTs where you're getting the 3d reconstructed image, is that mostly just for your, just really comminuted, um, uh, like articular fractures of the distal humerus, or are you getting it like for your trans, um, like your, uh, your trans columnar fractures as well? So I think in, in, in my practice, you know, in particularly if they're referred in, in, in an outpatient setting, they often come in already having had a, a, a CAT scan with, with, uh, with 3D recons. Um, I think there, there's no question that it can, uh, you know, in some cases change, uh, you know, change management and particularly in, in really low transverse bicolumnar fractures, uh, when there's any concern for a, um, uh, a sheer component of either the capitellum or the trochlea, uh, they can be really helpful. And I think can change approach procedure and, um, and management. Okay. And then, and then when it goes to classifying, um, these distal humerus fractures, are there anything, uh, any classification systems that you use or that you know that are used at all? By so I think the AO of, of generally classifying them as, uh, a, B, and, and C type fractures can be can be helpful. I mean, knowing if it's an extra articular um, bicolumnar fracture or a comminuted, you know, C three intraarticular fracture, um, they're helpful for research. But I, I think more practically, um, the descriptive classification system is is helpful. Um, you know, bicolumnar, intraarticular, extraarticular. Um, I think another component of that is you know, there's the uh, Brian Mori, and it's been modified a few times uh, for uh, shear fractures of the capitellum and, and trochlea. And I think that classification system can be helpful to understand what you're dealing with and in some cases can guide, uh, guide treatment. Uh, but I, I think generally, uh, at least the way that, that, that I, I discuss these are often a descriptive uh, classification in terms of describing the fracture location and the fracture components. Yeah, I had to add that Brian Mori, um, that classification system to the notes. I, I remember reading reading it one time, and um, and not quickly forgetting it, but just <laughs> I remember reading it and saying I need to go back and look at this. It's hard to because each it. of them have a you know like an, an eponymous uh, term associated with them, but um, it, it classifies the location and, and sort of how comminuted the the capitellar shear um, you know com component of it is. And and so can we kind of touch base on, you know, I think we did a good job kind of just going over just this, you know, quick, you know, high points of what to look for in H&P and imaging. Um, can we touch quickly on the, just the plain old anatomy where kind of just taking it back to basics, say, we, you know, sometimes we have interns uh, and junior residents that are listening on, in on here. Sometimes we have medical students on here as well, uh, but kind of just the basics of the anatomy of kind of the distal humerus, the important things to know. Um, and, and typically, you know, we can go through some of the bony anatomy and then go through some of the soft tissue things and, and just kind of the high, uh, pertinent, um, things we, we should know about this, about distal humeruses. Sure. You know, I think elbow anatomy is, is fascinating. And I think it's an area that there's sometimes some apprehension, uh, about operating, um, particularly with, with complex cases or bigger exposures, you have neurovascular structures all over, uh, very close to your 
uh, incisions into your, you know, to your operative, you know, operative exposures. Um, and so I think when we're talking about the, the bony anatomy, um, the key is the only humeral joint and, you know, it can function essentially like a, a hinge. Uh, and so everything that you think about, whether it's traumatic elbow instability or just a humerus fractures is sort of restoring um, the, the hinge and restoring your own humeral joint. It's highly congruous, which is uh, one of the challenges with getting an anatomic reduction uh, and some of the issues with, uh, you know, with, with post-traumatic arthritis. Uh, but I think I, I like to think of the trochlea as a spool. Um, and one of the things I've, I've found helpful, I think, especially in the age of, you know, of 3D printing, when you're doing, starting out with some of these complex humerus fractures or shear fractures, it's really helpful to keep like a sawbones or a 3D printed model, um, you know, of the distal humerus uh, and like a sterile bag on the field just to kind of, re, you know, refer back to. Um, I think that that can be, uh, that can be helpful. But I think the, the image you have up with the columns, the medial lateral column and the tie arch, is something that a uh, conversation that we get into with uh, plating constructs and, and restoring that uh, you know Roman arch kind of configuration, but uh, it's it's complex osseous and, and and soft tissue anatomy. I think that's what makes it a uh, very interesting part of the part of the body to operate on. Yeah, and I don't. I, I just recall. I think I was I was reading something and it was saying that um, that if like there's anything that you want, I think it was saying like one of the the superior pieces of the trochlea like you want to if any if there's anything that you want to align you definitely want to try to get the trochlea aligned um well of course with the uh with the proximal ulna just to again just kind of reiterating that point of making sure that your ulnar humeral joint is intact like have you have you read that or am i, am I making this up <laughs> no not at all i mean the the uh restoring the anatomy of the long humeral joint, I think, is a, is a critical part of, of any operation, whether you're talking about a distal humerus fracture um, or, uh, you know, traumatic elbow instability. And the radio capitella articulation, I think, can, um, you know, there's a little bit more, uh, a little bit more tolerance on the lateral side. Um, but, you know, you're absolutely right that the, the central spool and, and super aspect of trophy, I mean, that's all important areas to restore. Yeah. And what are some of the things that we, you know, anatomy wise that we need to know about the, like the soft tissues when we're talking about the elbow and then these different fractures and fix them that we just need to consider. I think keeping in mind uh, where your uh, ligament origins, both on the lateral and the, the medial side, I think that uh, understanding how to make your approaches extensile in terms of how to find the radial nerve proximally or laterally um, are, are important, but I think as you get into, um, you know, more complex exposures, I think knowing where your, uh, lateral or collateral ligament and your, particularly your anterior bandy or, um, uh, medial ligament, I think recognizing where those origins and certain insertions are, are, um, um, you know, are important. Okay. And then, and then you mentioned the, uh, you, you briefly just mentioned finding kind of your radial nerve, uh, what are some, I, I guess, what are some just important nerve um, things to know about, like about the elbow as far as uh, distance wise or, or any tips or tricks or anything that you know, as far as being able to kind of visualize and figure out what, exactly what the, what some of this nerve and vascular anatomy is. Sure. So I think each of, each of these, uh, you know, particularly for hand surgeons could fill an hour because we, <laughs> we love finding nerves, but 
Um, you know, the, the ulnar nerve, uh, I think in a lot of the traumatic cases, uh, I, I tend to try to find this proximally to the medial epicondyle, uh, retract the, the, the triceps, put some tension on the triceps, you know, find it proximally outside of the fracture field and then work distally, um, Osborne's ligament. And then in between the, the two heads of your, your flexor carpi ulnaris, uh, I think that's the most familiar nerve to, to find and expose, um, the radial nerve, uh, I, for most distal humerus fractures, uh, outside of your kind of spiral distal third shaft, uh, I, I won't routinely find it, but again, if you find that you need proximal extension, it's very important to know how to get there. Uh, often you can trace the sensory, uh, nerve back, uh, from the fascia laterally, uh, into the, the main trunk. Um, I think that number that, that you have up there, the 14 centimeters proximal to lateral epicondyle. Uh, I mark that out in all cases, you know, preoperatively, um, you know, so that I know. Um, I think another way of finding it is if you if you look at the triceps fascia, about a finger's breadth above uh, the end of the uh, triceps tendon fascia proximally, uh, if you dissect straight uh, to bone there, uh, the radial nerve is usually crossing the posterior aspect of the distal humerus. And so I, I think it's something I try to emphasize with our residents that it's important to know a few different ways to find it and how to find it proximally, how to find it distally. I think it takes away a lot of the apprehension that people have about having to extend your exposure uh, or having to um, you know, get a more extensile view if you can uh, find those nerves. Um, I think the median nerve uh, is a little bit less common um, to have to find in the, um, in the, the distal humerus in the distal humerus fractures, particularly from a posterior approach. Um, but again, you know, running with the, the brachial artery um, and, uh, you know, important to find in both medial and anterior approaches to the elbow. Yeah. And then I always see some things about like the blood supply to the elbow. And, and I know it's, it's tenuous and there are a lot of different um, vessels is anything that you think that we, you know, sh should know about the necessarily the blood supply. I think particularly in the, uh, in the pediatric population, the blood supply uh, coming in posterior, the capitalum is important and, um, you know, is, and is, uh, it is something to preserve. Uh, I think that's a, um, you know, important aspect, particularly for peds patients. Yeah. Okay. Um, so I guess we can, you know, kind of move forward to treatment and, and uh, in these in these patients now, are there any patients that have any distal humerus fractures that you're treating non-operatively? You have, you know, I've written books and, you know, all, a lot of them say different things, but uh, in your practice or, or anything as far as non-operative treatment, are there any indications for that? And then what is the treatment that you, you know, would, would employ if you are going non-operative? So I think this is a really interesting aspect of distal humerus fracture care. If you look at at trends for particularly in elderly patients with isolated upper extremity fractures. I think there's been a big shift in the trend towards treatment of, uh, towards non-operative treatment. So we know a lot of proximal humerus fractures, a lot of humerus shaft fractures can be managed non-operatively. I think one of the biggest changes to my practice when I first started was managing olecranon, displaced olecranon fractures in patients over 75. I can't remember the last time I've, I've fixed one. And the results, uh, I think anecdotally and, uh, you know, what you see in, in randomized series have been, have been pretty good. And, and same for distal radius. There's a lot of evidence for 
close treatment of isolated distal radius fractures. But isolated distal humerus fractures, we don't talk about non-operative treatment as often. Um, and if you look at some of the retrospective historical series, they have a high rate of non-union as high as 50% in, um, you know, in some cases, the functional outcomes are not great. Uh, and I think part of that is due to, uh, there's a 40 to 50% five-year mortality rate. So I think we're electing to treat uh, very sick elderly patients um, you know, non-operatively, but, you know, I wonder if, if this will be an area in the future that may follow some of the, the trends of other isolated upper extremity fractures in this population. Um, I think that to answer your question right now, my indications for non-operative treatment, uh, are, you know, non-displaced or minimally displaced fractures, particularly in older patients, um, or displaced distal humerus fractures in, in, in patients that, that wouldn't tolerate a, um, that wouldn't tolerate an operative procedure. Uh, I think there's a lot of variability in terms of how people manage that fracture non-operatively. I tend to go with a short period of uh, cast or uh, splint immobilization uh, and then allow them to start some range of motion within a range of comfort uh, around that, that three or four week mark. But I think that there's a lot of variability uh, in terms of how people treat these fractures non-operatively. Yeah. And is that kind of that bag of like that like bag of bones? Like if you have like this old patient that has like a severely comminuted distal humerus fracture, that is that what God, I feel like I've heard that like, you know, you're treating yeah, those non-operatively. Yep. It was, you know, a highly comminuted you know, fracture that we, we may consider a total elbow for in a, in a patient in their 80s and cast. And I, I will say that um, the majority of these that I've, I've treated non-operatively uh, have been in, in patients with longstanding, um, longstanding rheumatoid disease, and they seem to tolerate it quite well. Uh, and that may be because they have some underlying dysfunction in the elbow, uh, you know, in the elbow to begin with. Um, but yeah, I think that the, it's often referred to as the, the bag of bones treatment, um, whether that's, you know, some people do cast, some people do cuff and collar. Um, I, like I said, I, I tend to do a brief period of immobilization around three weeks and then let them start uh, range of motion. Okay. And so, you know, that's kind of our non-operative treatment. So what patients, I guess, are in, is operative treatment going to be indicated for? So I think the majority of young patients with, um, with displaced fractures, uh, we're, we consider operative treatment for um, the same thing for uh, lower energy, uh, uh, older patients, displaced fractures, uh, uh, intraarticular fractures, bicolumnar fractures. Uh, I think those are the patients that we're, we're more commonly discussing operative treatment for. Yeah. And, and, so one, you know, I've, I've seen different things um, regarding kind of the timing of treatment. Some, um, some places were saying, you know, if you ideally you treat these, you know, early, earlier you can, like within, you know, 48 to 72 hours. Um, others are saying, you know, you can at least within two to three weeks, any, any thoughts as far as timing for, uh, for treating these uh, dislocated oh, fractures? I think this is an area of, uh, of active research, and, and this conversation comes up particularly in the in the total elbow uh, when discussing total elbow for distal humerus fractures. Is there a benefit to 
letting the soft tissues cool down, so to speak, for um, you know, a week to two weeks to three weeks, um, or is there a risk of HO, um, you know, with, with waiting? And so I think it's a, a little, a little controversial. Uh, and I think a lot of it depends on, um, uh, practice and how these patients are, you know, referred in. If a lot of these are coming in through your ER, um, and you're able to, to, to fix them acutely, um, uh, versus patients that are referred you know, as an outpatient and you're, you're seeing them maybe three or four days after injury and then, and then operating on them the, the following week. But, um, you know, there's the idea that theoretically earlier surgery within 72 hours um, may lead to decreased heterotopic ossification and stiffness. Uh, and, and the sort of theoretical advantage of waiting, uh, you know, is perhaps the skin and soft tissue envelope is you know, is, is, is less inflamed. But again, I think a lot of that is, is surgeon preference and, uh, and, and practice structure sort of in the absence of definitive evidence. Yeah. And, and speaking about like skin and soft tissue um, injuries in patients that have open fractures, does your algorithm change at all? Do you ever use an X-fix? Um, you know, if you have a really comminuted, uh, you know, distal humerus fracture with, you know, bad, a lot of soft tissue loss or, does your treatment algorithm change at all for any open fractures? So for, for me, it doesn't, if I'm on call and, and there's a, you know, an open distal humerus fracture, that's not contaminated, uh, you know, would plan to take that to the operating room uh, for irrigation debridement uh, and, and would, would fix it in, um, you know, in the, in the same setting, you know, in the absence of, um, you know, in the absence of contamination. I think that we're, I work in uh, kind of an integrated system with a lot of community affiliated hospitals. And, you know, in, in some cases, if there's an open humerus fracture, you may wash it out, uh, you know, and, and, and splint it. And then their definitive surgery is, you know, is, is, is later for, um, for RAF. Um, I, I don't think there's a big role for X-fix of these distal humerus fractures for, um, you know, for open, um, open fractures, uh, for temporary stabilization. I think that if you're on call and not planning to treat a distal humerus fracture definitively, uh, I think that it's, uh, reasonable to, to perform a debridement and irrigation, uh, and then, uh, a splint. I, you know, in my practice, I reserve external fixation for distal humerus with, vascular injury, um, where they, they can't have, um, you know, RAF for that, you know, they're getting a vascular procedure. Um, but it's, it's, it's pretty rare. Um, uh, I think for uh, external fixation for distal humerus fracture. Okay. And all right. So say, you know, we have this patient bad distal humerus fracture, um, comes in, you're planning on fixing it. How do you position, do you position, you know, prone or, you know, you have them supine, what's your, what's your kind of choice? So for your standard bicom, um, bicom distal humerus fracture, um, planning an ORIF, uh, I, I position those lateral, uh, I will use a, uh, like a bone foam or a, uh, if that's missing, uh, you know, just, uh, pillows to lay the arm across. So lateral beanbag, uh, with a, a radiolucent table. Um, and I, I think it's important, particularly when you first start, uh, to make sure you bring x-ray in and get images before you prep and drape. Um, 
there's nothing worse than having the patient positioned and then finding out that you can't move your x-ray machine the way you want to be able to get the images that, that you need to get intraoperatively. And sometimes you can get overlap from the well arm if it's not positioned appropriately. Mm. You know, if you're on the wrong table, you have the, the you know, you can have the, the, the metal bar in your field. Sometimes the patient isn't rolled over enough if they're lateral. So I think when you first start doing these, uh, it's absolutely worth getting, uh, you know, an AP and lateral radiograph before you're prepped and draped to make sure you're, you're positioned appropriately. Um, I have partners uh, that position them uh, prone. Uh, so I think they're all, um, you know, it's, it's, it's all an option, but my, my preference is to position these uh, lateral. Okay. Yeah. We have, we have attendees that, that do uh, similar things, but all do different things. One that does lateral kind of the same um, positioning yeah. that you said, and another one that, that does all of his distal humerus is prone. So yeah. uh, I guess kind of all, all dealer's choice when so it comes for, to this. For like a shear fracture, capital shear injury, where I'm, I'm going to do a, uh, you know, lateral column or lateral approach, almost commonly position, uh, uh, position supine. Uh, but I think there's, you know, within lateral positioning, there's a lot of variations. And I think it's important to just have a reliable, reproducible way that lets you easily get x-rays. And I think that's the, that's the important part is that, you, you know, you're not struggling to get the films that you want. Yeah, yeah, no, I completely agree. And a tidbit again for all those listening, definitely um, get those shots beforehand. Make sure you can actually see what you plan on seeing and don't make the nurse, you know, go in there and under the drapes and try to move stuff 30 minutes into the case because that just it, never goes well. Nobody's happy when somebody's diving <laughs> under the drapes to fix it out. Oh, no. <laughs> no, no, nobody's happy. And um, so moving on, Kim, you know, we, we have this position positioned um, and we're ready to do the case. Can you kind of walk us through some of these distal, um, the, these different approaches for the distal humerus? You know, I know there's, know there's a bunch, but can we kind of go through some of these? And how do you choose what approach that you're going to do as well? I think this is another area that's, uh, you know, can, can fill an hour. There's so much variation uh, in terms of how people approach these. Um, and I think that a lot of times you, people look for an algorithm in terms of this fracture, you know, I, I do this. And I think there's a lot that, that goes into it. Um, I think generally speaking, um, we're talking about uh, sort of three categories. So a triceps on approach where you're doing your, your paratricipital or, or other variations and you're, you're leaving the triceps on its insertion on the electron. Um, there's a triceps off, uh, and there's a variety of ways to do that. And triceps split. Um, I use a, uh, a triceps tongue or what's referred to as a modified Van Gordner approach, uh, quite frequently. Uh, and then, you know, there's electron osteotomy, um, which is, is among the more extensile approaches. And so in general, for distal humerus fractures, an extra articular fracture uh, is a case that I'll routinely do with the um, with the triceps on uh, paratricipital approach. Um, I think that for fractures with a simple intraarticular component, or when there's not comminution of the central region of the trochlea. I think you can still manage those with the triceps on in a paratricipital approach. And the really nice thing about that approach is that you can do your paratricipital approach, you can extend distally, and you can do everything you need to do 
up to the point of doing an electron osteotomy and try to reduce your fracture and try to do what you need to do. And if you can't, you've done most of the work already. Um, and then, you know, you can extend that into, you know, into an electron osteotomy. So for the majority of younger patients um, where, you know, an arthroplasty is not a consideration, I start with a paratricipal approach. And if I can't see what I need to see and I can't reduce um, the, the fracture uh, adequately, then I'll extend and, and, and do an electron osteotomy. Um, I tend to take the triceps off or do a, um, a triceps tongue type approach, which is um, a, sort of a modification of a, of a VY um, in, in patients where there may be a consideration of a total elbow. So that sort of elderly patient with an intraarticular fracture, um, that's an exposure I'll use, you know, I'll use, use frequently. Um, there's a lot of variation, you know, within, um, you know, within each of these. I think it's important to kind of understand the advantages, disadvantages uh, of each of them. Um, you know, certainly the electron osteotomy is, is your most extensile. Um, you know, there is some concern, however, about, you know, if you have to convert or you have to do an arthroplasty, um, you know, with that type of an approach. Yeah. So, so just going, going back to it. So say, you know, we have our different approaches. This is all kind of just going from like, you know, you're doing your posterior skin incision, you have your subcutaneous flap. So you said one is where you can actually just split the triceps. So you, you make an, you know, incision right along the, through the fascia, through the tendon, you split it to gain access to kind of that posterior humerus. Um, the other is where you make paratricipital windows and right. so do you go, do you go down and do you dissect out your ulnar nerve first or, or how do you typically do this? You, you, I mean, do you go down so, and dissect that out or what do you do? Yep. So for the, for all of these cases, it's a, you know, a posterior skin incision. Um, and the first thing I do is, is, is find and, and dissect the ulnar nerve. Um, so I'll, I'll typically find it proximally, uh, dissect distally, decompress it at Osborne's and then, um, decompress in, in between two heads of the the FCU. Um, I think there's some controversy about, um, uh, about transposition. Um, but I think exposure of the ulnar nerve is the first, you know, first step of, um, you know, of that case. And I think, you know, from there, um, you then decide which approach you're going to use triceps on triceps off, you know, or an electron on electron osteotomy. And, and within each of those categories, there, there's certain, you know, certain variations. I think most commonly, um, do a, a posterior paratricipital where you're making medial, medial and lateral windows and leaving the triceps on its insertion. Yeah. And so you're just lifting the triceps off the lateral and medial intermuscular septum when you're doing that, do you just use a cob or do you, do you make Yeah. So I'll, I'll, I'll make a in, incision and then use a cob to dissect. And then you can use an, either an army Navy or sometimes a um, you know, a, a, a blunt home and retractor, uh, to move your, uh, you know, your triceps. I think the disadvantage of that is, is visualization, uh, and the central trochlea. And so for anything other than a, you know, a simple, simple articular split, um, you know, or certainly if there's, there's trochlear comminution, uh, you, you do not have enough visualization and you need to do something most commonly you need to do something more extensile. And, and it's kind of, can you walk us through this kind of this like Anconius peel and uh, slash the triceps reflecting? How, how do you, 
how do you typically do that? You just kind of lift it all off as one big, you know, big, big sleeve, or do you, do you do this? How do you, how do you do that? So th- this isn't an exposure that I use uh, okay. that I use very frequently for distal humerus fractures. The advantage here um, is that you're reflecting the uh, the triceps off and uh, maintaining, you know, through the anconius pedal and through the anconius blood supply. Uh, and so it, it allows you uh, for a little bit better view of the distal humerus without, um, you know, without doing an, um, without doing an electron osteotomy. Okay. And then, so what, um, cause you know, I've, I've always read different things as far as not, I haven't read different things, but I've always see, uh, you know, the osteotomy shape um, mentioned or kind of how you do it. Um, can you kind of touch on, you know, our Chevron versus our transverse osteotomy, if there's a, any difference between the two? Sure. And I think when, when you're doing an electron osteotomy, I think that the steps leading up to it, um, you know, are, are really important. And again, if, you, if you're doing your paratriceptal approach and you, you extend your um, uh, soft tissue planes distally, you're able to visualize it. Um, you know, you want to make your osteotomy in the, uh, in the bare area between the two facets, um, you know, the electron. So I will typically take a K wire at the apex of that, uh, that chevron, and then use a, a saw with a, a, a small curve to uh, make my osteotomy. Um, I do use a, a, a chevron, uh, distally based chevron, just because I think it affords some um, um, inherent stability when you go back and uh, reduce it. Uh, some people will use osteotomes or at least finish with, with an osteotome because you're not losing as much um, uh, bone when you then go to, to fix it and potentially compress across your um, across your olecranon. Uh, and then there's a variety of uh, fixation options for the olecranon osteotomies. I tend to use a uh, intramedullary uh, intramedullary screw. Uh, sometimes with a, um, with a tension band, but there's, there's plates, there's uh, intramedullary devices that are designed for the osteotomies. And so there's a, um, a K-wire tension band construct. So there's, there's a variety of ways. And is there a certain distance from the tip of the osteotomy that, I mean, not the osteotomy, from the tip of the olecranon that you should do your osteotomy or just kind of between those facets, like you were saying? So I'll dissect and, and you can see almost in that picture on the, on the left so that you can look into the, the joint and then look directly at the, um, you know, look directly at the bare area. You don't want to make your osteotomy too proximal uh, because you, you, you run the risk of having, you know, a real small fragment with uh, not a lot of fixation, um, you know, and, and too distal, you run the risk of in your articular cartilage or into your, uh, into your coronoid. So it's something I, you know, will directly, um, directly visualize and then make my osteotomy right at the, um, uh, right at the bare area. Some people actually put a ray tech into the joint to protect it. Um, I finished the osteotomy with an osteotome just cause I think there's a little bit better, um, you know, better control, but I think it's important to do it right at the bare area. So you're not violating the articular cartilage. Yeah. And then a little bit earlier, you're mentioning something about if you want to do a total elbow, um, in doing an osteotomy. So is that something you should do? Shouldn't do? Or kind of what is what are your thoughts on osteotomies if you're thinking of possibly doing a total elbow at some point? So I think if if the total elbow is a you know is a consideration, um, I, would, I think try to avoid an osteotomy. Uh, it's just another 
component you have to manage um, during your um, you know, during your total elbow procedures. And so there's a variety of exposures for, you know, for total elbows, you can do them with the triceps on, um, you can, you know, you can do a, a, a triceps tongue or a peel. Um, but I think if you can avoid doing an electron osteotomy, um, you know, in, in the event that you're planning a total elbow, I think that's, uh, that's best. That being said, I've, I've particularly in some rheumatoid patients have managed, um, uh, distal humerus fractures with associated olecranon fractures, uh, with, um, with a total elbow and then fixation of the ulna. So you, you can do it. It's not, um, you know, like a, an absolute contraindication, but I, I think it's a technically a little bit more challenging. And then you're also relying on that olecranon fracture to heal. And, and do you ever, you know, so we talked about kind of these posteriorly based approaches, you know, are different, you know, triceps on, versus our triceps off versus kind of doing a lycronon osteotomy, which gives us the best visualization of the distal humerus. Do you ever do um, disco or just a medial or just a straight lateral approach? If you have like your partial articular, um, partial articular uh, distal humerus fractures. Right. So if, if you have a partial articular, you know, trochlear and or capitellar shear fracture, and that's, you know, an, an, an isolated injury, um, I, I will use a, uh, a lateral approach. Um, isolated trochlear shears are fairly uncommon. Um, and that I think would be an indication for a uh, medial over the top approach. Uh, but most commonly for those partial articular capitellar shear type injuries, um, uh, using a, a lateral approach. And, you know, that's whether you use a coker or an EDC split, uh, I think getting visualization proximally is important so that you can, you know, directly reduce that fragment. I think another component, um, and it's, it, it's something I've, I've heard um, uh, David Ring talk about and, and publish on before is that uh, the majority of these capitellar shear fractures are not isolated capitellar injuries, they extend to some component into the trochlea. Um, and, and that doesn't mean that you necessarily um, need to do a medial approach, but I, I think, you know, going back to our imaging discussion, I think that's very important to know preoperatively um, how far that extent is into your, uh, you know, into your trochlea. And if it's something that you can treat from a lateral approach. Okay. Cool. So, so say, you know, we've done our approaches, we've gotten down, we can finally visualize our frag fractures, uh, fragments, and it kind of comes time to fixation. What, I guess it's kind of slowly breaking it down. What, how do you decide what kind of plates that you're going to use for these or what are, are there some typical plate options for these distal humerus fractures? And then we can kind of go a little bit deeper from there. Sure. So I think this is a, uh, a controversy, you know, within uh, fixation of, of these injuries, and I think in 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 general, uh, there's there's two plating constructs that are used, and that's parallel plating, where you have a plate on the directly on the medial column, the right uh, directly on the lateral column, um, versus uh, perpendicular or orthogonal plating, where you have typically a direct medial plate. Um, and then a, uh, a post-tier lateral plate. Uh, and so I, I think there's advantages, disadvantages to those, um, to both of those. Um, I think the advantage of uh, parallel plating 
there may be some biomechanical advantages, particularly in varus and torsion. Uh, it allows for, um, you know, as Sean Driscoll talks about a lot, is that sort of recreation of the Roman arch and the interdigitation of those long screws from the medial and lateral side. Uh, clinically, there's there's not been shown to be a big difference between the the two constructs, um, but I think when possible, um, you know, my my preference is for uh, parallel plating um, of these these fractures. And and when it comes to plate, like actual plate choice, do you go with a pretty like a three point five millimeter pre contoured um, distal humerus plate, or do you go with a um, um, lock and compression plate, like DCP plate, what, what kind of plate choice do you, do you typically go, go for? Sure. So a lot of, um, I, you know, I think regardless of the company, there's a variety of, of, of implant companies that make, uh, very good anatomic distal humerus plates. And, and, and typically, um, on the medial side, I'll use a, you know, a, a plate with the option for three, five screws proximally. Um, and an anatomic plate on the, the medial side. And sometimes that'll extend down to the trochlea, sometimes just to the, the level of the medial epicondyle. Um, and, you know, again, there's, there's options for um, anatomic or pre-contoured um, uh, locking plates for the lateral side as well. Uh, but uh, there, there's also opportunities that you can, uh, you know, you can bend uh, you know, bend a plate to fit, you know, to fit where you need. So I think there's, there's a variety of, of options, whether you're going to use a uh, specific, you know, pre-contoured plate um, or a, you know, three, five or a, a, a mini frag type plate that you bend. And do you typically, I know you mentioned you use, you kind of your three, five screws proximally in the shaft in the distal humerus are you using uh, different, are you using like two, seven screws or are you using, you know, smaller screws in the... So yeah, depending on the, the, the company, you know, two, three, two, four, two, seven, um, you know, in, for the, for the screws distal to the fracture, um, uh, that's typically the screw size, um, that we're, uh, that, that I'm using for those. And you typically, um, for the, these, you know, the screws that are going into that distal fragment that are kind of getting that interdigitation of what you're saying, if, if we're doing parallel plating, are these all locking screws or are some of them cortical? How do, what is, I guess, what is, uh, are they, are they all lockers or, or cortical or is it a combination? Um, so typically proximal, uh, I'll, I'll use, uh, cortical screws, uh, and, and, and distal and articular fragments, um, uh, uh, typically polyaxial locking screws. Okay. Uh, either, either two fours or, or two sevens. Um, sometimes, uh, particularly in the case of, a you know, with an articular split, uh, you can put an independent, uh, screw across the articular surface. Um, and I think particularly in cases where there's, there's comminution, uh, I think it's important that the positional screw and, and not to, you know, compress across that because you can narrow your trochlea. Uh, but, but the, for the, in terms of the, the screws through the plate, uh, I, I typically would use lock screws and that locking screws in that area. Okay. And, and I guess as far as, um, the length of the plate, how do you know, how do you choose how far proximal you want the plate to go? Like I've, I've read, I saw some things where they say when at least three holes proximal to the metaphyseal component, um, some, I mean, do you want three and then how do you, if you're doing parallel plating, do you, do you want both plates to end at the same level or do you want plate one plate 
higher than the other or what any thoughts on that so yeah that that's an interesting question and i think there's some um some conflicting biomechanical information um in general uh for each plate i try to get three screws proximal to the fracture uh and i try to end um i try to end the plates at different levels uh to avoid a, a stress riser uh, so I try not to have the plates end at the, um, at the same level proximally. Okay. And then, um, oh, that's, that's exactly what the side here as well. I was going to ask you, yeah, I already did. Um, and, and as far as your sequence, so you go and, you know, say you have a really highly comminuted fracture. Do you have a typical sequence that you do? You know, I just put this here cause this is something I read about, you know, I spread yeah. that. So no, people, I, yeah, go ahead. I think this is a really important, um, a really important part. Uh, and, and I'll, I'll talk about this in the context of, you know, that there's a, a C type fracture, uh, and, and we're going to proceed with, um, you know, with, with parallel plating, uh, I'll start by, um, trying to reduce the articular surface. Uh, so, you know, turn a, a, a C type into an A type. And typically that's depending on how much comminution and how many pieces there are. It's with a variety of, of um, small K wires, um, you know, 035-045 uh, K wires to get your articular block, your articular segment into, um, you know, into one piece. Um, I think an important, important side note, I think when you're, when, when you're putting in wires, screws from the medial side, uh, I think very important, even if you, your nerve visualize protected, uh, to try to run that in on oscillate as much as you can, um, to protect the ulnar nerve. Um, once you have your articular set segment, you know, provisionally reduced with K wires, uh, you try to bring that segment back to the, to the shaft, um, and hold that provisionally. Um, the next step, I think you can apply your plates both on the, um, the medial and the lateral column. Um, and I'll get provisional K wire fixation, both proximally and distally through the plates into the fragment. Um, and so now you have everything reduced. You have both your plates in place, you know, of, of where you want them. Um, and I'll put a screw, a cortical screw in the oblong hole through both plates, um, proximally. And, tighten them down, get locked screw fixation distally, you know, through each plate. And then I think a really important part of the, you know, really important step next is, is supracondylar compression. Um, and so because you have that screw in the oblong hole, you can loosen it. You can take a large point of reduction or paraticular clamp and get sort of individual compression through each of the columns and then tighten down your, your screws. And once you have that, you have, you know, a screw in proximally, a couple of screws in distally as well as your K wires. Um, you know, your fracture is reduced, everything's in, you know, in good position, you have, you have compression across the, um, you know, the fracture, and then you can, can finish the rest of your, um, your fixation. And so those are the, the, the sort of general steps, provisional articular reduction, um, segmental, um, uh, compression or supracondylar compression. And then, you know, definitive fixation, sometimes a little bit variable depending on how much you're. Uh, work your articular surface needs to restore. Um, but those are the general steps that, that, um, that I follow for parallel plating. 
and, and when you're putting your um your k wires in where did you say that you're you're starting medial and, and putting them in laterally when you can just because you because you know where the nerve is or no uh, I, I think you know, it just depends on where you know where they they need to go i think when you put wires in from the um you know wires in from the medial side um i, I try to run those in on oscillate just as sort of an extra layer of protection from the nerve often um you have good visualization and a lot of bone in the the lateral side and so you can run um, you know, run K wires in from, um, you know, from across there as well. But um, no, I mean, I, I think it's, it depends on the case and depends on the fracture of where your, your provisional K wires have to go. Okay, cool. And I think that was uh, very helpful, uh, Dr. Grandizio. I think that, you know, this has been great so far. And um, what I think we could do is I know you have some cases um, that, that you have, uh, that you have supplied us with. I think we can go through some of these to kind of tie all this together. Um, those that are listening, if you want to check out the YouTube channel, we'll post the cases there so you can actually see what we're talking about. But I will try to describe these uh, x-rays as the best uh, to my abilities that I can. Um, but yeah, Dr. Grandizio, if we want to go through this, we can um, go through some of these cases and kind of uh, I'll see uh, how about this we can try and I can I can guess and say what I would have done, you know, given my severely novice experience and not knowing much. And we'll kind of see if you agree, um, and then we'll, I guess we'll kind of go through what, what you did. No problem. That'd be great. Uh, okay. Let's see what we got here. So first one, 43-year-old female. It was a fall from a height, and we're looking at an AP and lateral. Um, where do you got from elbow, uh, which it looks like the shell is kind of a, a sheer um, fracture of this capitellum. Uh, anything else that I see here? So I see this capitellum looks like it's kind of flipped up or displaced uh, anteriorly or superiorly. Uh, let's see. Don't see any, you can kind of see an outline of it here on the um, on the AP. I don't really see anything else. It, maybe a little widening in the uh, only humeral uh, joint uh, laterally, but otherwise nothing else that I would have picked up on these films um let's see what is the next one a ct let's see i know the next one might be what we might do. be a fixation yeah, okay fixation. um so i mean i think for this i don't know i don't know if you need to do the whole like the medial and, and lateral plating it looks like kind of you just need to get something to get this capitellar piece in um so what we were talking about a little bit earlier i maybe this one i may do like the lateral coker approach, um, yeah. either try to go through, you know, between Anconius and um, and EDC versus split split EDC, and um, and I would try to reduce that and possibly, I think there are a couple ways. I think some people may do like headless compression screws through the capitellum. Um, yeah, I guess I guess I guess that's what I would. Yeah. That's probably what I would do. I don't know. Let's. I think that. I think that sounds very reasonable. Let's see. Let's see what we did. So okay. So this oh, is. I did CT. have a CT. Sorry. Oh, excellent. So <laughs> we're looking at a CT scan that you know just kind of just shows this display. It's kind of commuted. Um, it seems to be a little commuted um, superiorly, but completely displaced um, capitella fracture. And okay, so you want to take us through kind of what you did here. Sure. So I, I think the, um, if you look at the lateral radiograph, uh, it's, it's what's often referred to as a double bubble sign. So there's, there's two, 
um, uh, two lines with two bumps. And if you go back to the CAT scan, I had put that, um, put that in there to show that this is very common with the capitellar shear fracture. We refer to this as a capitellar shear fracture, but this is actually a capitellar and trochlear shear fracture. And so you can, mm. you can see in the image on the right, um, you know, that that extends into the, you know, the onhumeral region, the region of the trochlea. And so in the, the AP radiograph, you don't really get a good sense of that, but the lateral x-ray is enough there to let me know that this is extending into the trochlea. And I agree with you, that does not mean that you necessarily have to do, um, you know, a medial approach, but I think you need to know how much of the trochlea is involved. Um, and if you can address this injury from, from a lateral approach. And so um, in this particular case, uh, I did a, a lateral approach and was able to fix it with headless compression screws. Um, I try to get fixation in two planes. And so um, the shorter sort of anterior to posteriorly based headless compression screw, and then one that goes from medial or sorry, from lateral to medial, almost like a rebar type construct. Um, I think there's some, some biomechanical advantages to that uh, of getting fixation in, in two planes. Um, the other thing I'll say about these fractures is, is that in, in cases where um, you have some comminution of the posterior cortex um, or an, uh, um, an impaction, you know, lesion sometimes from the radial head, uh, I think you can supplement this with, with a plate uh, with the idea of, of being able to get later, lateral to medial screw through your plate and then A to P, um, you know, headless compression screws. So I think a lot of different ways to, to go about uh, fixing these in terms of um, construct and implants. But I think it, it's very important to recognize um, that a lot of these can extend into the trochlea and just aren't isolated capitellar shear fractures. Mm. Okay. No, that's uh, all, all excellent points. And, and so you're saying you may put a lateral plate and then put some screws to it just to make sure, I mean, put some th screws through the plate just to kind of um, Correct, particularly it. in cases where the, the posterior cortex um, uh, on the lateral side Oh, okay. Uh, is not intact. It, I think it, 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 it gives you some, some stability uh, some added stability to get uh, fixation from lateral to medial. And are these two seven screw? What size screws are these? Are these two uh, seven screws here? Those are two seven, um, uh, cannulated headless compression screws. Ah, There's okay. a variety of different, um, screw types and sizes available, but those are, uh, two seven headless compression screws. So you reduced it, had a K wire, and then kind of drilled over the K wire and put these screws in. Correct. I, I try to get a uh, initial K wire outside of where I think my um, fixation will be, and then you can use the wires from uh, the headless compression screw to hold your reduction um, uh, provisionally, and then uh, you know, and then uh, drill over. I think the other thing that's that's important in these is is really to understand your lateral X ray. Um, we often talk about having the, the three circles um, on a, if you get a perfect lateral of the distal humerus. And so those three overlapping circles are the uh, central spool of the trochlea, the capitellum, um, and then the medial border of the trochlea. And so your, your widest circle, um, the widest diameter is your medial border of the trochlea. Your capitellum is in the middle. And then the really um, narrow uh, one is your, your central, um, central spool of the trochlea. So I, I think it, it's, it's helpful, particularly when you're 
assessing your reduction and assessing your, your implant position to kind of uh, be able to critically assess uh, what's what on a lateral x-ray. Yeah. So when we're looking at this one, injury film, so it looks like we have this fragment here. I thought this was just that, but it was rotated. Mm -hmm. um, and then is there anything, I mean, maybe this little piece of comminution here, but is there anything else on here that you see that you would have picked up on that may, we may not be picking up on or that I, that I may not have picked up on? No, I think you, I think you covered it. I mean, I, I think that that double bubble sign, um, you know, can clue you into there's a, a capitellar shear and potentially with extension into the, um, you know, potential extension into the trochlea. Um, and, and, and I know we had talked about this earlier, but this is a fracture that, that I, I, I routinely get a, a CAT scan on. Yeah. Cool. All right. Well, let's see here. What do we have here? So we have next case. This is a 77, um, 77 year old female who was in a motor vehicle collision. Again, we're showing um, AP and laterals of the elbow, which shows this um, kind of this medial sided shear fracture and it seems to involve a, it will intraarticular. So intraarticular looks like a type B um, involving right into the kind of trochlea. So go, so intraarticular um, piece right through the trochlea. Uh, this is displaced um, on our lateral. This seems to be, yeah, I think that's missing capitellum. Um, so it looks like our capitellum is often displaced. Um, and then that's what we have on the uh, medial side here. Let's see. This is there a CT scan? Yeah, there's a CT on this one. I don't see. Oh man, yeah, that bad injury. Um, so CT scan just showing that it is a little bit more um, articular damage than I would have initially thought. Is all this kind of posterior fragment? So for this, um, it's like an old in training question with two oblique x-rays <laughs> yeah i know um so for this what i may do is um i would probably do an electronon osteotomy I, I think i'd go posteriorly do an electronon osteotomy um see what you can do uh see what you can see uh reduce the capitalum reduce the medial um size so i may do orthogonal plating on this um i think you can do both i think you do either go orthogonal or parallel plating but i would possibly think orthogonal because that posterior lateral plate you can get some screws into the into that capitalum and on the medial plate you can kind of buttress that medial fragment um but uh here let's see what we what we have here oh I no <laughs> completely off I think that if they were, if this was, if this patient was 24, mm. you'd make every effort possible to fix it. And, and I think there's a couple of things from the, the x-rays uh, in this case is that, yeah. uh, you know, in the lateral, you get a sense that there's a sheer injury to the capitalum and trochlea. Um, and then I think much better appreciated on the CAT scan is the fact that this is a very low transverse fracture. Yeah. Um, and so the, the combination of those two things um, in, in older patients. And, and I believe this patient's in her mid seventies, um, are an indication for, um, you know, a total elbow arthroplasty. And, you know, that's a whole, I, I think a whole separate discussion, 
Uh, you know, there's some some classic articles and you know showing for common intraarticular fractures in patients over 65 that the results of of total elbow um, you know may be better than um, you know than than ORAF. I think that in even in this age group, if the fracture is able to be fixed, you know, a C1, a simple intraarticular um, fracture, um, I, I would lean towards fixation over arthroplasty. Okay. Um, run into a low transverse fracture, you know, with shearing injuries, um, at least in my hands, that's not something that I think that I could get anatomically reduced and stable to allow for early motion. And so those are the fractures that in the patients in their seventies and their eighties that uh, I lean more towards, um, you know, total elbow arthroplasty. I think that that's, you know, not a discussion or decision that's taken lightly. There are certainly complications uh, with, you know, with total elbow for, um, you know, with total elbow for, for fracture. And, uh, you know, it's, uh, but I think that in, in that, uh, in that population and, and for this fracture, I think a uh, a better option than than fixation. Okay, so key key things here: um, older elderly patient, um, you know, this very low um, transverse. transverse fracture with the kind of those shear components be pretty hard to get, you know, enough screw fixation um, distally into that fragment, and you know, especially given her age, why total elbow was chosen in this patient. Correct. Cool. Good case. Um, let's see. All right. Let's. All right. Here we go. Forty-two-year-old females in a motor vehicle collision. This almost reminds me of those pediatric type fractures. Um, but let's see. So we have uh, an AP uh, in the lateral of an elbow, skeletal mature individual. It seems to show the articular surface seems to be okay, but uh, definitely get a CT on this. But it kind of shows this to the naked eye to me. What seems to be like this partial articular. Um, uh, fracture of the of the distal humerus, comminuted. Um, let's see on the lateral. I mean, it's displaced anteriorly. Definitely to, to have a good neurovascular exam uh, for this patient. But the joint itself doesn't look too bad. No, to me. Uh, let's see. Do we have a CT on this? Let's see. Uh, I don't. Oh, boom. Yeah. All right. Let me try to. Um, so for this. Uh, I probably would have done the, I'd probably go posteriorly. I don't, I think you could work through paratricipital windows for this. I don't think you need to do an electron osteotomy. Um, and I would definitely put a plate laterally. Um, I'd probably do parallel plating with this. And yeah, I I think that's what I'll do. Let's uh, see what, what we have here. Almost right. Orthogonal plating. Um, yeah. This you is, want to take us through this? Um, yeah, th- this is interesting. This was a case actually of my early on. At the, this was in my, my uh, board collection period. So she had a, 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 um, a non-displaced intraarticular split. Uh, and that's a, a positional screw across the fracture slate. And, and again, my, my preference is for, for parallel plating. And in and, and this fracture, um, I, I thought I would be able to get more uh, fixation um, using a posterior lateral plate. Uh, and this is actually her x-rays at six months. She had a non-union. Okay. I think there's a lot, uh, to discuss for this. So this was an, an atrophic, um, 
you know, an atrophic non-union. And if you look, I ended the plate at different levels. Um, uh, and I think what I, I failed to do here was get adequate uh, supercollar compression. Yeah. Uh, and so if you look at this, it's an extremely rigid construct. Um, so there's multiple locking screws just distal to the fracture. Um, proximally uh, on that posterior lateral plate, there's a lock screw just proximal to the fracture. Um, and so this was a, um, at least in the metaphyseal component, a simple oblique fracture that was fixed with a gap without adequate compression. And in addition to that, it created an extremely low strain environment because there's rigid lock fixation kind of all over. And so that combination, gap, lack of compression, low strain environment is a recipe for non-union. Yeah. Um, and fortunately, uh, she healed uh, somewhere between nine and 12 months from, from what I remember without any, any further um, you know, any further intervention. Um, so at this point, you know, a delayed union. Um, but I think it's, it's often very easy to, to go back and say, oh, you know, this was high energy and she's a smoker and, and, and this and that. But I, I think that uh, early on, this was a, a technical failure um, of mine and a case I learned, you know, quite a bit from. And so if you're doing this again, if you had to go back and redo this, you would, you would still keep the, uh, the medial plate, but you you do, you do um, parallel plating for this. And then one of the things that you would say that you try to get that supercondylar compression. So you'd use a periarticular clamp to um, on, and you put it on, you put it on the sides of both of these plates and then you put some, and you loosen that screw and put another um, three, five screw in. Is, is that, is that correct? So, yeah. And, and again, I don't, I don't think there are any issues related to the, the, the posterior lateral plate. I think a lot of people use that and it's, and it's, and it's certainly a fine construct. I, I think if I was doing this again, um, I would have uh, chosen parallel plating. I would have put a uh, provisional cortical screw in the oblong hole uh, in the shaft and then um, compressed, uh, got compression, you know, through the fracture um, better than I did, uh, before, uh, getting the rest of my fixation proximally and distally. And so I, I think in, you know, I think in this case, it's, uh, you know, important to get the super collar compression, uh, before you get your, you know, your definitive fixation. And you can do that with, with one screw in proximally in the oblique hole, and you can just take a clamp and compress through the, um, compress with the clamp. Cool. And looks like probably we've got one more case here. Um, last one here is 24 year old female and we're looking at an AP and we have a coronal, I'm not, not a coronal, we have an axial yeah. um, cut of the distal humerus it shows intraarticular fracture. Um, it's very displaced, you know, it's comminuted immediately. Um, so, I mean, for this is one I may, I may do an electronon osteotomy for this just to, oh, I mean, it's somewhat simple. Uh, yeah. Yeah. yeah I, I don't know. I may start with the paratricipital and see what we can get. Um, and then definitely a plate immediately given that comminution. That's kind of where we kind of need to put a buttress there. 
and then laterally, I guess you could either go with a posterior lateral or just a, um, uh, you could go with orthogonal or parallel on this, but let's see, let's see what we got here. Okay. You want, you want to take us through, um, what you did here? Sure. So I, I think this is a good example of exactly what you just said, that you, you can do the paratricipital and you can see if you can get it reduced and, and fixed. And if you can't, you know, you can, ex, you can just extend and do the electron osteotomy. It's not that much extra work. Um, you know, you never really regret doing it. Uh, but I think in this case, even with an intraartic simple intraarticular split, uh, I didn't need it to get it reduced or fixed. So I was able to leave the triceps on. And so this is sort of a more classic example of, um, of the steps. So you start by reducing the articular segment and that's a uh, positional screw, um, you know, taking care not to compress because that'll narrow your trochlea. Um, positional screw, um, get your medial and lateral plates on, um, your single cortical screw in the oblong hole approximately, a couple of lock screws distally through each plate and then you can get really good supraconolar compression, um, you know, through each of the plate and then finish with your, um, you know, with your, uh, you know, definitive fixation. And so this is, I think, a more classic example of um, a parallel plating construct and the steps you would, you would take to do this. Awesome. Um, and then, and then one more here, 55 year old male um, in, Let's see, I gotta take what I'm looking at. So we have a, uh, with this, uh, AP in the lateral. Um, this seems to show, gotta get my orientation here, right? Yeah. So on the AP or somewhat of an oblique, it looks like this kind of more of a supercondylar yeah. fracture. I can't tell if it's impacted in. Um, I think very similar to the other one in that you can kind of get a sense of a um, non-displaced intraarticular split. Yeah. And then you want to quickly take us through what you, what your, uh, what your thoughts were on this? I think very, you know, very similar. Very similar. Um, you know, again, I think even in these, uh, uh, you can start with the paratricipital approach. Um, and then, uh, you know, if you need to extend, which in this case, I was able to get the articular surface reduced, um, you know, without an, without an osteotomy. Great. It looks good. Um, well, Dr. Grandizio, I would definitely uh, appreciate you for coming on this podcast. We learned a lot about distal humeruses, um, you know, kind of, I think we definitely talked about a, a lot about, we talked about the different approaches. We talked about um, different fixation constructs. We talked about anatomy. Um, we even briefly touched on history and physical exam findings. Is there anything else that you want the people to know about, um, Kind of before we before we wrap up here, any last words for uh, you know these distal humerus fractures? No, I, I think uh, we covered a lot. Uh, I really enjoyed it. I think that uh, preoperative planning in these is is really important and something that um, you know I, I continue to do for um, for all of these cases. Uh, you should go in with a plan A, but you know be prepared for your um, you know, for your, your plan B and plan C. And, and I think a big component of the preoperative planning is to make sure you have appropriate imaging and understand your fracture before you get, um, you know, get into the operating room. I think that a lot of the, 
I think when you have an understand of your understanding of your fracture geometry and your pattern and what you're going to do, it makes the decision making of what approach, um, what am I going to do with my nerve, what plates. Uh, I think the more of that that you can decide before you you make incision, um, you know, the less stressful some of these these cases can be because you know particularly in younger patients and comminuted fractures they can be uh, um, somewhat stressful. Yes, I completely agree. Uh, and Dr. Grandizio, we always, um, for our guests, we always state, you know, if you have any social media or anything that you want to shout out uh, for people to follow you on or contact you or anything, if you want, you know, feel free to share it. If not, that's completely fine too, uh, but totally up to you. I don't, I don't have, uh, I don't have any social media. Uh, I have my email um, on there. If there's, um, uh, there's, if there's any questions, um, chris.grandizio at gmail.com. Uh, but I really appreciate it. This was, was, uh, was a great time and uh, uh, I appreciate you having me on. Of course. We appreciate you taking the time out to come on for those that are uh, listening. Thanks again for listening to another episode of the Nail It Ortho podcast. Uh, don't forget to hit that subscribe button and please go and leave a review in iTunes and let us know how much you enjoyed this episode on distal uh, humerus fractures. And, uh, and until next time.